0: Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. I'm going to read this for the next uh, few months because we need this constant reminder. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you say, the day drawing near. I want to encourage you uh, to know that what you're doing right now is very important. Gathering as the family of faith for worship is crucial. We have to engage in worship. Yes, we're going to have to adapt. And, and these adaptations are not always going to be comfortable, but they are crucial. And it enables us to advance together. Friends, this pandemic's going to end. And what I'm praying and, and what our leadership is wondering is, when the pandemic is over, what will living hope be like? Who will be left? My greatest concern right now are for the the, the sheep of our flock who are not engaging. I'm concerned that they will be devoured because what the enemy loves to do is to find a sheep that has wandered from the flock uh, so that he can confuse it and devour it. Friends, each one of us has a different circumstance. How we engage in worship, how we engage in group life Well, we're going to have to be smart and we're going to have to adapt. Those of you who can gather here for worship should. Those of you who cannot should not. And as we seek to gather, we're going to have to adapt even more, especially for those who aren't able to to come into this place. That word together is very important. We're going to talk about that more and more in the days ahead as we seek to adapt so that we can be together for worship, so we can be together for group, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, when we do gather for worship, we're going to seek to see uh, what only God can do. We, we say, come see what God can do. We know that God is transforming lives. God has the power to save and to renew and to transform. And those He transforms, He calls us to impact our homes, our neighbors, and every generation with the hope of Jesus. And as we seek to see what God can do, right now we're in a series of summer where we're talking about seeing the need for love. Today we're going to talk about, and we're going to look at Scripture to understand how it is that that we are to love our hurting neighbors— there are a lot of people hurting in the world right now. And the church has a very important part to play in bringing healing. And we are blessed as a congregation because we have so many great ways that we get to be a part of what God is doing in the world to give love to our neighbors. We, we have unbelievable partners with, with the room at the end, with the pregnancy center, the counseling center, uh, certainly with Hope House. And we have other ministries where we are caring for the poor, we are caring for the addicted, we are caring for the incarcerated. And all of these ministries are wonderful. And, and we're so blessed to have been the founders of many of these and also the, the ones who are uh, providing the greatest amount of financial assistance, fin- financial support, so that these ministries can happen But friends, Christ calls us to do more than programs. He calls us more to do more than just help with with partners. But in order to help well, we have to be wise. We have to be so wise. Uh, There's a book uh, by by a man by the name of Stephen, uh, Steve Corbett. And the book is called When Helping... Hurts. See, our ministry partners, one of the reasons why we support them and partner with them is because most of them are trained experts in their field. They, they seek to give help in ways that are unique, and, and so they have sought training to be able to do it well. In this book, and again, if you really want to understand a philosophy of ministry of what it means to help people who are hurting, I highly recommend it. When helping hurts. You have to understand, though, that some help actually does hurt. Here's what he says in this book. The same is true when we work with poor people. If we treat only the symptoms or if we misdiagnose the underlying problem, we will not improve their situation And we might actually make their lives worse. This week, we had a man who was in our building uh, trying to get in. He was going to different doors, shaking the doors, trying to get in. Well, our our building during the week is on lockdown. Uh, With COVID-19, the only people who are allowed in this building are staff and and those who are invited for meetings. And even when they come in, there are certain guidelines that everyone has to follow in order to protect the health of everyone who is here. And so you can imagine, as a a rather large man was rattling the doors of our— facility, many of us were getting rattled ourselves into what it is we needed to do. And one of our ministers, Mark Gillum, went out and, and spoke with the man and immediately recognized that there was something going on with him that was well beyond Mark's expertise. Now, this is a minister who has two decades of experience uh, on this church staff alone. He understands uh, what, what it is to minister to someone in need, but he quickly recognized that there was something going on, and so he made a phone call. And in a matter of minutes, there was a social worker and very kind, very understanding police officers who were able to help this man get to where he could get the kind of help he really needed. Mark acted wisely. We must act wisely. When it is we seek to provide help, we have to look out for what is best for the broken, hurting Person, Not what it is we want to feel like after having encountered them. We have to seek out what is best for them. Now, even though most of us are are not uh, experts in all the areas of the things that we will come in contact with, we still have a responsibility. There's still a part for us to play. As it pertains to those who are hurting— Our our hurting neighbors. They need our love. And what I love about our text today is this text helps us understand what our role is and what it is we can do effectively. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, let's go to the book of James. The book of James. We're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let's all stand together in honor of God's Word. And I'm going to read now James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, what faith apart from works, that that faith from apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out? Uh, by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Amen. If you would be seated and pray now for the preaching of God's word. The author of this letter is James, known in, in history as James the Just. He was the brother of Jesus Christ He was also the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. He had a lot of influence. He had a lot of authority. He had a lot of knowledge about Jesus and and about the way he has called us to be at work in the world. Now, he was writing to to deal with a a very serious mindset that needed to be corrected. He was dealing with people who were saying that how they lived didn't matter so, so long as they had faith. Now, the the primary theme of the book is to challenge Christians to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And so, thinking about faith, here's something I want you to remember. Everyone lives by faith. The question is, and the question I would encourage you to ask yourself is, where is your faith? Where does your faith lie? What do you have faith in Charles Spurgeon in All of Grace, he wrote this. It is not great faith, but true faith that saves. And the salvation lies not in the faith, but in the Christ in whom faith trusts. It is not the measure of faith, but the sincerity of faith, which is the point to be considered. It is not that you have great faith in just anything, it's that you have specific faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what we know. God's design was that we live in perfect harmony with Him. But we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that has created brokenness. Wherever you see brokenness in a relationship, wherever you see brokenness in our world, you can know that that was caused and is caused by sin. Now, what we celebrated in the Lord's Supper is the fact that God has come To overcome our sin that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty of sin and through his resurrection now we have not only freedom from the punishment of sin but also the power of sin and we are now free by the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ in the power of the gospel that that having repented of self-reliance and believed in this gospel we can now pursue and recover God's design understand True faith in Christ alone transforms us, saves us, and enables us to pursue and recover God's design. It allows us, this gospel, to have true faith. Please understand, true faith is not passive or indifferent. True faith in Christ is active in obedience to God true faith in Christ loves hurting neighbors because of what Christ has done for us what did Christ do for us when he saw us dead in sin did he say well they they got what they deserved did he he just turn a blind eye and say oh whatever they they should have worked harder they should have done more They, they, they made that bed they can sleep in it for all I care that's not what God said God said, no, they've sinned and they're hurting and I'm going to enter into their reality and I'm going to sacrifice for their salvation and I'm going to give them new life and I'm going to love them. And that is what we are called to do. That's what true faith does. Our text today shows us how. And I want to encourage you to take note of of really what this true faith is that enables us to live in obedience to Christ in this way. First, take note that true faith is not lip service, but action. It's not lip service, but action. You know, it is so easy to talk about what needs to happen in our world. That's why there are so many and forgive me if they're a family member or a friend, morons on TV today talking about everything that needs to happen in the world, but who are doing nothing to make it a reality. You know what's hard? Is to see the need and then to do not just something, but the right thing about it. You know, we, we Christians, you know, one of the challenges we have, especially here in North America, especially at Living Hope, is not gaining information about the Bible, but having the faith to actually obey what it is we already know. If, if you've been a Christian for more than three months, if you've, if you've come through, if you've walked through the disciples' life uh, and three big things, then you already know more than what your heart is willing to do. And that's one of the great challenges of the Christian life. It's not that we don't have enough information. It's that we don't have enough heart to obey. It's that we don't have enough love to actually obey God's Word. Our our issue is not information, but activation, doing what it says. Back in the spring, uh, Asher and I were putting together a a basketball goal. And, and, you know, a a, a pretty normal person, uh, according to their their, um, the the form they gave that that we were supposed to follow, directions they call it, um, it would usually take a a person, a normal person, you know, an hour and a half to two hours. Well, it took people like Asher and I two days. And we don't know how many hours because we kept putting it together. The directions were clear. Everything was marked. It, It was, it was right there. But we kept doing it wrong, backward. And we had to take the whole thing apart and put it back together at least three times. We're not real handy, but we are good looking. And so we've got that going for it. well. He is anyway. Our problem was not information, it was activation. We had the information, we just didn't act on it properly. And that is the great challenge of the Christian life. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, friends, our problem is not information. And please understand what Christian maturity is. Christian maturity is not knowing lots of information about God in the Bible. Christian maturity is obedience to the God of the Bible. It's obeying His Word. You'll know, we can know that we have maturity when we are obeying what God has commanded. And we are commanded to love our hurting neighbors. And we must be very careful how we go about doing that. We must do it according to God's Word because if not, we might cause harm. Dr. John Perkins is a 90-year-old minister. He is a social activist. and, And he wrote this. Have you ever done anything to hurt poor people? Most of you would probably answer no to this question, but the reality is that you may have done considerable harm to poor people in the process of trying to help them. The federal government made this mistake for decades. Well-intentioned welfare programs penalized work just as they are right now. Many people fully capable of going to work are saying, no, I'm not going to go to work because they've already been and they're given money and they're making more by not working than going to work. That's bad. It's, it's penalizing work. It's undermined families and created dependence. The government hurt the very people it was trying to help. Unfortunately, the same is true of many Christian ministries today. By focusing on symptoms rather than on on the underlying disease, we are often hurting the very people we are trying to help. Surprisingly, we are also hurting ourselves in the process. As followers of Jesus Christ, we simply must do better. We need the person of Jesus Christ to transform not just the poor, but also ourselves. Friends, we have to be so careful that that we don't hurt ourselves and hurt the people we are trying to help. Well, you say, well, how do we, how do we hurt them? How do we hurt people we are trying to help? Well, one way is we make them victims. We assure them that they are victims and that they have no ability to take responsibility for themselves. We affirm that. And then we make them dependent upon our handouts. Now there are so many so-called leaders, and I call them so-called leaders because I don't think they're leaders at all. I think they're con artists who are currently right now trying to convince large groups of people that they are victims and that they should pay them money to speak on their behalf and and be dependent upon what they can come up with legislatively so that that they can have the resources that they want, so that they can have all that they've ever dreamed. These are charlatans. And friends, we must not be like them. We, we, We have a higher calling than that. See, we hurt people when we make them victims. We hurt people when we make them dependent upon us. We hurt them because you know what we do in in, in all of that? Is we make them ashamed. They can't feel the pride that is supposed to come in the heart of a person who takes responsibility for themselves. We rob them of that joy. And it hurts us. Because we become arrogant thinking that we are saviors. We become people who are now doling out and and creating dependence. Friends, our goal must always be to help people become confident and capable of caring for themselves and their families. This is what God expects from all of us who are able. We are to care for ourselves and for our families. Writing to the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, wrote this. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example, to imitate. What's he saying? He said, We, when we were working with you, We could have asked the church to receive tithes and offerings that would have enabled us to be able to work full time in the ministry for them to support them in doing the ministry. But Paul said in this instance, that's not what they did because they saw there was a greater need. The apostle and his leaders saw that the church there needed to be taught how to imitate them and to take on responsibility in giving care for themselves and their families. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, the way we help each person depends according to who they are in their situation. Friends, sometimes we're going to need to be a hammer, and sometimes we're going to need to be a crutch. A hammer is good for slamming a nail. A crutch is good for leaning on until there can be healing enough for a person to walk on. You need to be careful of what your tendency is. I'm a hammer, and as a hammer, almost everything looks like a nail to me, all right? It just needs a good kick. That's my natural tendency, and that's naturally what I tend to look for from other people. But there are times when there needs to be a crutch, and I have needed a crutch in the past. Paul speaks to discerning the difference in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. This is such an important verse, not only for leaders, uh, which by the way, if you're a parent, you're a leader— Which, by the way, if you're a Christian, you're a leader. You have influence. It's important that we understand how to steward that. And this text shows us how. And we urge you, brothers, look at this. Admonish the idle. The people who are idle, get on to them. Get after them. Encourage the faint-hearted. For those who who are who who are just discouraged, don't, don't admonish them. Encourage them. Help the weak. It does no good to, to holler at a person who's weakened and cannot do what they, what, what they know they are supposed to or what they need to be able to do. Look at this last one: Be patient with them all. There's a time to admonish, that there's a time to encourage. There's a time to help. There's always a time to be patient. Now, how is it that we are to, to know when we are to do what we are to do? How do we know? Am I, well, am I supposed to admonish here? Am I supposed to encourage here? Or am I supposed to help here? Verse 15 in our text today gives us a clue. Look, if you will, in James chapter 2, look at verse 15. Here's the clue. Here's how we know. Here's how we can get to that answer. Verse 15 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Notice how the hurting neighbor is described. This is not a stranger. This is someone who is known to us. In order to help people rightly, we have to be in a relationship with them. How do you know if you're to admonish them or to encourage them or help them? Well, you won't know until you get to know them and their real story. Not the one they try to use to to get people to give them a few bucks to get through the day. No, 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 their real story, their real life story about where they're hurting and, and how it is they've come to be in the situation they are so that you can not judge them but love them. And the only way they're ever going to trust you to tell that true story is if you're in a relationship with them and you show them that you really do care like a brother to a brother, a sister to a sister, like family. Every hurting neighbor is a person. And and, and if we don't treat them as people, we are dishonoring God and we're dishonoring them. Friends, be so careful when you're seeking to help your neighbor that they do not become a problem for you to solve. A project for you to do, a plan for you to exercise. It really gets under my skin when I hear people say, well, you know, I just have some time and I don't just want to loiter about. I, I really want to do something that helps other people. I, I really want to be engaged. I, I, I really want to do something that makes a difference. Who's that about? Is it about the person who needs help or is it about the person who wants to give help? Friends, we have to be so careful that we don't make this about us. So many people want a project so that they'll feel good. So many people want a plan so that they can say, oh, well, look, I've accomplished something today. Look how important I am. Look how good I am. Look how, look how I've done great things. Wow, aren't I wonderful. Everyone should probably worship me. Now, we would never say that out, out loud, but how many times have you thought to yourself, they didn't even say thank you? friends, If someone needs, needs, if you need someone to say thank you, you didn't do it for them. You did it for you. And what you were looking at was not a person. You were looking at a problem. You were, you were looking at a project. You were looking at a plan that you wanted to exercise out. And that dishonors God. It also dishonors God when we flat out just don't see them. Don't see it. And say, look at verse 15, go in peace, be warmed and filled. If we don't give them the things they need, what good is that? What James is saying here, what the Bible teaches, is that, that, you know, that is like faith without works. Faith with words only is dead. If a person claims to have said a sinner's prayer, or maybe they made a decision, filled out a card, but they don't have true faith in Christ, and, and that faith is not living out, friends, it's not real in the same way. A person who talks about helping or or what should happen for a hurting neighbor, but doesn't do anything about it. Well, look, they're not living with true faith. True faith is not lip service, but action. Second, true faith is not head knowledge, but heart obedience. It's heart obedience. This text we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. Uh, People often get hung up on this text. I just want to go ahead and warn you. A lot of people get hung up on this text. And, and what they do is they, they lose the entire point altogether when they, when, they, when they get kind of riled up about it. So look at it. Verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Look at this. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Friends, I'm going to put it up on the screen. The point of the text here is not to talk about how a person is saved. The point of the text is to explain what happens when a person is saved. Look, we, we, we know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Romans chapter four, verse five. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We are made righteous by faith. We are not made righteous by works. We couldn't do it. We cannot earn our salvation. Our salvation is received by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, faith is a two-sided coin. Faith saves and faith works. If you don't have both sides of the coin, you don't have the coin. Faith saves and faith that saves is faith that works. I like to think of the Christian life as a cross-centered life. We are made right with God so that we can be right with people. We were served by God by grace. We are to serve others through Christ by grace. It is a life that lives out this faith. It's a faith that saves us, and then a, a faith that is lived out horizontally in the real world. Friends, it's important to remember that the, probably one of the, maybe the greatest, but certainly one of the greatest theologians, certainly one of the greatest Bible scholars that ever lived on this planet was the devil. He's had more time and more access to the doctrine. The text says that he knows who Jesus is and he shudders, but it doesn't save him. Why? He does not have the atoning work of Jesus Christ offered to him. He doesn't have the means to be saved. He is a fallen angel. Jesus did not become an angel to redeem the angels who have fallen that are now demons humanity fell into sin. God himself became human. He died in our place so that we could be saved. It was the shedding of his blood that made us right with God. The devil can't be saved. You and I can. It's not about what we simply know. It's about what we truly believe. And when we truly believe, we truly love. And when we truly love, we truly obey. What what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to believe that Jesus is God and died for our sins. It means to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And when we love him, we obey him. You hear me say it all the time. I say it all the time because it's true and because I want you to memorize it. Those who know Jesus, love Jesus. Those who love Jesus, obey Jesus. If you do not obey Jesus, it is because you do not love Jesus. And if you do not love Jesus, it's because you don't know Jesus. To be a Christian is to be someone who knows, loves, and obeys Jesus, who lives like Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, Do you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them? It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, look, don't be like government officials who simply serve through, through uh, positional power. Jesus calls us to know him and love him and to know and love people and to love Jesus because he's loved us, and to love people because he has loved us, to be servants like our Lord. We, we have, and know that we have true faith when we are seeking to live in a way that honors and obeys God. True faith is not head knowledge, but heart obedience. Last thing to take note of is this, true faith. True faith is not dead but engaging. It's engaging. Very important word here that I I want to make sure you understand the definition of. It's found in verse 21, and it's also found in verse 25. I would encourage you to to circle that uh, in your Bibles or highlight it there on your your tablet or your phone. It's the word justified. Justified. You'll see it there in verse 21. You'll see it there in the verse 25. It's very important to understand This word and how it is used by Paul versus how it is used by James. The word justified uh, does not here mean to be made right with God. That's how Paul uses it. Paul uses the word justified in Romans in particular as an accounting term. What it means is this we we had a debt of sin, and that debt, the wages of our sin, was death. So Jesus paid it all. He paid for that, and now that debt no longer exists because it has been fully paid by the blood of Jesus. James is using this term not as an accounting term, but as an investigative term. I would say it this way. The word here for justified means to be proven right. To be proven right. In in an investigation, they were proven to be right with God. Abraham was proven to be saved because he was willing to obey God the Father and offer his son Isaac. It wasn't because he offered his son Isaac, but because he had faith and he was willing to, because he was willing to step out. It wasn't his action that saved him, it was his faith. His faith had works, though. And these works of obedience, because of his relationship with God, proved that he was saved. Same with Rahab. Rahab was proven to be a believer in God because she received the messengers and sent them on their way safely. Her faith did what was right and best. She helped the spies. So I'm going to read this. And with that definition in mind, understand the text. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified, proven right with God by by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was acting along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified. That is, they are proven by their works and not by faith alone. So it's not just that I say that I'm saved, that I have faith. It's that I obey God and my works prove that I am saved, that I have a right relationship with God. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, proven to have a right relationship with God by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Without fruit, we can know that there is no life. The root of our life in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit will produce the life of Christ, the life of the Spirit. I I must ask you, do you have the life of Christ in you? Do you have true faith? Do you have a love for God that forces you, compels you to obey If you have never repented and believed the gospel, I'm not saying you've never been to church. I'm not saying that you don't know Bible facts. Have you ever repented and believed the gospel? And do you now have a life that shows the love of God to your neighbor? If not, I can't say for sure where you stand with God. I can only say that there's no proof. If you have any question about it, you need to... You need to deal with that right now. The most important question you will ever ask yourself and that you will be asked are you saved by grace through faith in Christ alone? It's the question that will determine all of eternity for you. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes right there where you are. Let me invite you to do something. Answer the question. Are you saved by grace through faith in Christ alone? If you don't believe you are, but you want to be, then say this to God Father God, I have sinned. I can't make up for what I've done. I believe Jesus died to pay for that sin. Please forgive me and live in me. I'm all yours love you. Father God, I pray right now that many are being saved. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you are saved, then God calls you to engage in loving your neighbors. Real quick, let me remind you, to do that in this day, you're going to have to engage, adapt, and advance in loving your hurting neighbor. The first thing you got to do is you got to be willing to see their need. You know, most of us, if we're honest, we're really busy. And and really, when we ask people how they are, we really want that southern answer, don't we? What does it southerners say every time, hey, how you doing? Well, they say, I'm fine. Two syllables. But we're not fine. We're all afraid of something. We're all hurting somewhere. We have to be willing to see that need. And then we have to look to God. And we have to pray, God, what do they need? Do they need to be admonished? Do they need to be encouraged? Or do they need to be helped? Whatever it is, let me be patient with them. And then you got to engage. It may cost you emotional energy. It may cost you money. It may cost you time engage. Do what God did for you. He didn't just turn away. He entered into your reality, ours, and he sacrificed to love us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you did not abandon us, but instead you entered into our reality to love us. You call us to do the same thing because we are saved We are to go and we are to love as you have loved us. So show us how, show us what to do. Give us the maturity to pray and to pursue what is best and helpful to others. Please, God, don't don't let us make it about us because that's what our flesh will want us to do. Show us your way and enable us to do it rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.